1: Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with Aaron Lamer and Evan Ratliff. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey, good to see you guys. Really nice to see you, gentlemen. Hey, who did we have this week, Evan? This
2: week we have Max interviewing Joel Lovell, who is an editor at the New York Times Magazine. Uh, he's also a writer. Recently, you would have seen a cover story that he wrote about George Saunders in the Times Magazine, which he talks a lot about. And he was also at GQ. He was a writer for GQ and he's one of the most respected long-form editors in the business. A minor disclaimer, uh, We, Max and I went to Pittsburgh um, to do an event um, at which this was taped, um, thanks to Pitt writers who are uh, an academic supporter of long-form, um, and the sound did not come out perfect. In fact, I would say it came out far from perfect. Um, we considered nixing this episode, but we heard from several people who had heard it that it was the, their favorite episode so far. Joel was a really incredible interview. So we've decided to air it, uh, take it with a grain of salt, and uh, maybe try listening to it with headphones. All right, enough of that. Uh, we do have a sponsor. Um, that sponsor is Tiny Letter um, from the good people at MailChimp. It's the simple way to send an email newsletter, and we thank them for their support. Uh, here's
1: Max and Joel. Live from Pittsburgh. Thank you, thank you so much for having us, the University of uh, And thank you very much, Joel Lovell, for coming all this way. That's okay, I'm very happy to be here. I have to ask you about like many, many things. I have a whole slew of topics, none of which I've prepared you for. But we should start, I think, with uh, the profile of uh, George Saunders. Um, as I read it, I got the sense that you knew the guy pretty well. How long had you known him before you started recording the story? It's funny. I mean,
2: I, I knew him a little bit, but not very well before the story. I mean, I knew his work very, very well. I had I, I read his work really uh, closely for a long time. And we had sort of overlapping worlds a little bit. He wrote, a, I don't know, three or four stories for GQ. Um, Would but you, do you know but I, wasn't, I wasn't his editor there. He wrote a tiny thing for me in the Times Magazine when I first went over there a couple of years ago. We did this education issue, and we asked a bunch of people to write about their best... The sort of most formative education experience of their life. And he mm-hmm. wrote this very nice and sweet piece about these two high school teachers that he had. Um, so, you know, we'd had a couple, you know, a couple experiences, but I, I didn't know him well at all. Was but,
1: it was it a piece that you have been wanting to write for a long time? Was the was his new book an excuse to do it? Or,
2: or... Yeah, I no, I had not thought about writing about him, but I mean I thought I, I wanted I wanted to know him, really, is what I wanted to do. I mean it sounds a little stalkerish, but it's just true. <laughs> it comes through in the piece. Yeah, I know I know a little too much, I think. Um, but he, uh, you know, I got a galley of his book back in September, and I read, you know, probably half the stories that are in that book, roughly half of them in New Yorker, and I read those ones, and maybe one of them experience. Um And I read that book, and I was so blown away by how great it was. And, and it really felt to me, in three or four stories in that book, I really felt like he was he was just doing something that nobody else had ever done, as far as I could tell in fiction, and certainly breaking new ground for himself. Um, and I thought, wouldn't it be cool if if the New York Times Magazine could do a huge, big cover story on a short story writer and just say, like, here's this incredibly great writer who has this real passionate but fairly small following and just sort of announced to the world <clears throat> that this is just somebody you should be reading. And I didn't think that my boss would go for it, um, but I sent him this long and passionate email. I just, this is why we should do this. And this guy, he's not just a great writer, but he's an incredible person. And uh, and, and for some reason he went for it. I don't know exactly know why. And then he read the stories and he said, Sure, let's do it. Um, so he didn't even know Saunders of it? You know, he knew knew him but yeah. not, but hadn't really read his work that much. Uh, but it's not like a natural it's not a natural magazine decision to say, you know what, let's put a middle aged white short story writer on the cover <laughs> right. I mean I mean the, the, the white and the male part of it. obviously, they get, they get plenty of coverage on the government magazine. Only young <laughs> men in the New York Times magazine. But, but, <laughs> but doing a big story on a short story writer is not necessarily um, an obvious thing. And um, and I was just sort of happy to do a story where, I mean, I should probably sound more sophisticated than this, but I sort of knew going into it it was just going to be a love letter. Basically. Well, that, I, th- I mean, that was one of the things I was wondering about. Like, uh, did you, were there any plans ever to do it straight? I mean. Like, did you ever think about masking your love? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I mean, I, I thought a lot of times that it was, it was maybe overly, um, like overly enthusiastic, you know, and then a little overly personal. Like, but then I thought, you know, what the hell? It, 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 I'm either gonna, it's either gonna feel honest or it's gonna completely embarrass me. But I'd rather be embarrassed trying to do something honest than just do kind of like. Um, sort of standard by the book magazine. Did that did that
1: like crystallize as you were reporting it or did you go up to like upstate New York the first time and was like, here comes the
2: love? <laughs> <laughs> no, it definitely happened in the report. I mean, we became, you know, it's this thing that I, I think probably occasionally happens to people who, who do these kinds of stories is you spend, I mean, he was really, really open to his time for once. We spent a lot of time together, um, even more than sort of suggested in the story. And um, in each time we met, it just felt like this this friendship was deepening and then I thought, well, t- t- I know it seemed like I wanted to
1: sort of honor that in some way. And that sounds boring. Right? No, no, I, mean, I do know what you mean. I, I, it, it also felt to me like the, that experience you're talking about with that you had reading the book, the yeah. emotions that, that it brought up and you just kind of authentic emotions for like vulnerability and openness. Um, those are themes in the story, but it also felt to me like the story was designed in a way to evoke those same things. It's the That's same... Exactly. And, I, I wonder whether you think nonfiction has that capability. Whether journalism can do that thing that
2: fiction can do. Um, yeah. The short answer is I do. I think I think it's I think it's very hard to do. And I think when I was, I mean, honestly, there were plenty of whiffs of drafts with this, drafts that were really really bad. And. Um, and people read and sort of saved me from. They um, were like, roll it back. <laughs> I realized, I mean, honestly, I'll, I'll, I'll get to a, a more straight answer of your question in a second. Yeah, that. But the the first draft of this story had, it was like this found th- there was a thousand word opening, a little over a thousand words, um, which I was just convinced was the best magazine story opening that anybody had ever. Heard. <laughs> wow, <laughs> and people are going to be blown away. By this. <laughs> and, the, and 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 it was, I mean, it was very emotional. Um, that sounds creepy, I know you're going to be loud. <laughs> um, but, but the story was this uh, I was at the playground with my daughter, who's five, my youngest daughter, and I was talking to somebody, and she was up on this, um, one of those fireman poles. Uh, so her head was probably nine feet off the ground, and she, she lost her handle on the pole, and she fell backwards, and she fell straight back, and I watched her come down. And she hit the ground, you know, her head hit first. And I, sort of scram, I had to jump over something to get to her, and I got to her, and she was totally unconscious. I mean, she was out. And um, and it was really terrifying. She was out for a while. Uh, and I was screaming her name over and over, and there was a woman, a mother next to me, and she was saying, wow, should I call an ambulance? Should I call an ambulance? And it was like a solid 30 seconds where she was out, but it felt like she was out for a month. I mean, I couldn't, you know, she just wasn't moving. And, um, and I was really, really scared. Uh, and then she came to... We got her to the emergency room. They, you know, they, they did a scan. She was, you know, she had a concussion. They used to look for bleeding. She was fine. I got her home. And I was, you know, I was kind of quaking all night. And, uh, and my wife was out of town at work. And um, so I got all my kids into bed and I put them to sleep. And um, and then that night uh, was the first, was the first time I read this story called the Semplica Girl Diaries, which is a story in the, in the um, collection. I say essentially about a father who um, is sort of struggling to, uh, to to provide for his family. I mean, it's so about a lot of things, but so that's like the domestic part of the story, is that. And I felt so powerfully moved by that story. I mean, I was really, I literally felt like the story is speaking to me right now in this way that, that, that um, only the most sort of powerful art can do. And I was very well you know, overwhelmed with emotion. And, um, and so, to make a long story even longer, I wrote... Um, you know, I wrote this opening that was all, it, it was all about that scene, and my you know, my kid, and then reading the story at night, going back to check on her to make sure she was okay, and crying, um, and I thought, I thought, wow, this is going to be a powerful opening, and I gave couple people there, like, wow, you see, this just seems crazy, <laughs> just so how do you cut that? Uh, well... I mean, I think maybe in another setting it probably could have been, it's, it's a story that could be written and, and mean something, maybe, um, if it's done right. I, I certainly don't know if I was doing it right or not. But um, but I think as an opening to a story in that magazine. It probably would seem a little crazy to the truth. So, uh, so just so, you know, I've gone. What actually ended up in the magazine was much less personal in fact. Where I'm I would just not asking, like, like
0: stockery, <laughs> <put> <laughs> <this laughs> but uh, I feel
1: like... It's got. There's got to be some difficulties or challenges, or at least I would be terrified of um, writing a profile of a great writer. Like, write, writing without a great writer. And, like part of the dynamic of this podcast is often that like I'm interviewing people who are master interview, interviewers, and I'm doing it quite poorly. Was that scary? Like were, was that in your head? Like oh, man, not only is like this guy going to be you know affected by everything I write, and anytime you write about anybody. They're gonna look for the little details in his mouth, but also he's gonna be like, eh, wouldn't we
2: gotten there with the kicker? You know, <laughs> like you know, it was is that dynamic there? Uh, in my head it was very, very much there. I mean he 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 was, like I said, he was a very generous guy. So generous in all these conversations and um, and really generous with his answers and open and honest. And so, you know, there was a lot of material to work with, so I felt I, I I felt like I had a little bit of a backstop in that. If I did nothing else in the piece other than just write transitional sentences between his long quotes. It would be it would be alright, um, but then late in the game, I I am um, not that I don't know how much this is interesting to anybody, but um, but I got pretty I got pretty blocked up. I had a very hard time writing it, and um, and you know four days before the magazine was supposed to be sent to the printer, I basically had scrapped twelve thousand words. I, I I had nothing and. Um, because you felt like it wasn't—I just capturing it wasn't. I felt like I wasn't getting him right. I felt like it, I couldn't get the balance right between the personal stuff and then the trying to explain what the stories were about, trying to explain his background. There was just um, like there was too there was too much information to choose from, and I couldn't figure out which which stuff to include in the in the size package that I had. Um, and so it all—it just felt like it, I could never get the counterbalances right. And um, and and I really then like as we got closer and closer to the deadline, I felt like I the story was a failure, you know, I sent him a couple emails, and I said, look, I just want to let you know that I know you gave me all this time, I know this is, you know, a cover story in the Times Magazine is important for a writer because it could affect book sales, but, but this, you know, this is, pre- prepare yourself, because this is going to be a letdown. <laughs> um, uh, and he, in, in the... In the thing, right? <laughs> I wrote one about three days before it closed, and I wrote one to him the day that the story was going to go up online and I, that morning I woke up, and I, and I really woke up with some dread, and I sent him an email, I said, Just, you know, it's coming out today, and, um, you know, I, I couldn't quite pull off what I wanted to, and, I, and thanks for all of your time, and I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and, Have you ever sent, like, a uh, no. caveat email like that? No, 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 it was, it was crazy. Um, and he he wrote back this very nice email, he said, look, first of all, I write short stories, and, you know, my name's going to be on the cover of the New York Times magazine, so, Already, it's to win situation. Good deal. And, uh, and he said, you know, I appreciate these conversations, it was good. So, you know, all, anybody, all, all any writer or anybody can ask for for the subject of a piece of writing is that somebody try to be honest and thoughtful, and if you've done that, then we'll be fine. Uh, and that was very comforting. And
1: then uh, once you read it, what was your reaction? Oh, it was nice. He sent, he sent a nice message. He was, yeah. Did you... Uh, did it take, like, the entire internet telling you that story was great? You know, it was great. What, what, how many emails that were, like, that story was amazing? What did it take for you to be like, okay, maybe it wasn't a total plus? It was,
2: you know, by the end of day one, I felt I felt pretty good about it. And, um, it's, but but still, you know, there's, I mean, I think this is the thing that happens with any writers, just to get it off me for a second, is, um, is there's always, there's always, like, the platonic form of the thing you're writing that you have in your mind, and then there's this... Um, Especially magazine writing, because there are all these other um, contingencies that come into play, right? There's space, and there's time, and there's uh, you know just all these things that don't have to do with whatever arty thing you have in your head. We've got to get this out the door, and um, and so there's I think even the best writers end up feeling like you know, what goes out is often a little something a little bit monstrous compared to the thing that's in their mind. Um, and so I was very intensely feeling that, and uh, and even so, I sort of, I, I still, even after the nice response to the piece and George's book has done well, and so I feel like that in some ways reflects on what the story was. Um, I still scratch my head a little bit and think like, I don't know, uh, I wish that my internal experience matched the external reaction a little, a little bit better, but but it's kind of, you know, I'm coming around. Well, it, it sounds so crazy. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds very like... Um, Dude, that's not even close to the uh, that's craziest sounding thing you
1: said. <laughs> <laughs> um, your experience with it is, is uh, interesting to me, in part because it felt, you know, you're, you're all over that story. Yeah. You tend to put yourself into in your work quite a bit. Is that something that you encourage other writers to do? Is that something that turns you off in other writers? Could you, could you have... Imagine a way to write that piece. For the other stuff you do without
2: people into it? I, I can imagine the piece, of uh, you know, a great piece that that you know never had the first-person pronoun in it, and you never. I, I just don't know that I could have written that piece, um, and not because I have you know, like so many um, wonderful things to say. Like like the mom, I'm so really interesting, but 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 from. I, I just sort of know where my limits are, and and, and one of the limits I came up against just over and over again with that story is just I like, didn't trust my own lit crit abilities a little bit, you know. I felt like I couldn't fall back on that kind of authority, that sort of uh, analytical authority. There wasn't a way to talk about his work without being clear about how his work had affected you. Yeah, and then, and then, and then I just thought, well, look, the reason you want to do this is because. You find this fiction more than almost any, certainly more than any contemporary fiction that I can think of. Um, I, I just find it personally moving in a way that um, just is important to me, you know. And so I thought, well, if that's what you feel, then try to get that across. Yeah. Uh,
1: you started as a fiction writer. Yeah. Right? yeah. And then moved into magazines. Did you have aspirations of? being a writer for magazines,
2: or did you want to be an editor from the start? How did that work? Uh, it, it really was was a sort of, um, it wasn't a very uh, intentional process. I I, I went to uh, the MFA program, the fiction writing program at the University of Michigan, and I had a great couple of years there and I stuck around. I was teaching fiction the year after I graduated and trying to write some short stories. <clears throat> And then I really sort of lucked into this job. Uh, I started working as a stringer for Harper's Magazine back. This is in the sort of in the pre-internet days. <laughs> and so you know, Harper's had what they still have this reading section. The way that the reading section works is they've got people at Harper's who are constantly scouring for things to put in that section, and then they hire a handful of stringers who are just also out there in the world looking for things and reading newspapers and reading literary journals and whatever. Uh, so I was one of those people. Uh, and it was really fun. I loved it. And then a job opened up at Harper's, and they offered it to me. And at the time, I had no—I didn't think I wanted to be a magazine editor. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was thinking well, maybe I could get a job teaching at college, or you know, maybe my wife would be really successful, and I will just be able to cook dinner when she comes home. <laughs> <It's> my pleasure. <fault. laughs> Absolutely, my pleasure. Um, uh, but then this job at Harper's came along, and I thought, well, I love reading Harper's. Sure, why not try it? Uh, and then that's. Uh, and, you know, I had to take an editing test and all that sort of stuff. They didn't just say, like, hey, come on over here and work for us. I had to do a little bit of work for it. But um, I was so less qualified then, and this is not false modesty at all. It's very, very true. I was so less qualified then to have that job than any editorial assistant at any magazine in New York right now. Absolutely. Every, every time I've ever hired somebody or interviewed somebody, I read their resumes and I talk to them, and I can't believe how talented they are compared I mean, and, and they're accomplished, and they've done things, and they've thought about things, and, and you know, I, I, you I must I, have thought about things. Sure, I thought about some <laughs> things, but I, did, but, I, you know, but I didn't have, like, I, I didn't really have a magazine mind. And if you can talk to anybody who's trying to get an editorial assistant job now in New York City, or, or I'm sure at least outside of New York, um, like, they really know magazines. They know them backward and forward. They think about them, and they think about how magazines exist online, and, they, and, and they're very sophisticated about it in a way you know, that I was just like, oh, I'm sure, I like stories, this is great, you know. I mean, and, and I'm very, very happy and lucky that I got that job. But um, but I don't, I don't think I was going to qualify for it, honestly. So what was it like when you showed up? Uh, it was in, <laughs> it was intimidating. I struggled for a while. It was a little bit like... Um, what what is struggling as a magazine ever look like? Well, it's, it, it's a sort of psychic struggling because you just feel that everybody around, you know, that you're the dumbest guy in the room a little bit. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there, you know, there are a lot of, I mean, you know, there are a lot of pretty smart people there, and there, and there are a lot of people who, um, I say, there, well, there are a lot of people who, who um, are comfortable, uh, or at least at the time, were comfortable demonstrating their smartness. <laughs> 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 the <central> <laughs> <laughs> I believe the
1: uh, uh, more commonly used phrase assholes. <laughs> 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 so, anyway, you're working with a bunch of assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. Your confidence pickup? I mean, like, what, what, was it one story that just killed it? You know, you started feeling uh, like, okay, well, maybe this magazine stuff is for me? Was it a slow thing and you woke up 15 years later and you're like, I'm a magazine
2: editor and I've been doing this forever? No, it, it, it took a while. There was a guy in there who, um, who was sort of my mentor, although well, he's younger than I am. This guy named Paul Tuff, who's uh, he's now a reporter and writer. He just wrote this amazing book. book. How Children Succeed, which is an amazing piece of journalism and writing. Um, but he was the guy who was running the reading section of Harper's as well as editing stuff that's not in the magazine. And he just seemed to me like the coolest and smartest and most interesting person I've ever met, um, and, and he still is. Uh, and I just thought I wanted, I wanted to learn how to do what that guy does. And I, and I basically just watched him for a long time trying to figure
1: out, to to copy it, did you have aspirations still of writing fiction? Do you still have aspirations of
2: writing fiction? Mean? Yeah. yeah. Do you? Uh, not not much. Just re- recently I have been. It's funny. I, 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 reporting and thinking about the so, the Saunders story just made me feel like I was living the world of fiction again in a way that I haven't in a long, long time. And it was really nice. It felt great to be doing like that. It was, it was exciting. How does fiction... Uh, Inform your journalism. How, how does it help you think about uh, magazine stories? Um, well, I, th- I think if you're a fiction writer, or if you've read a lot of fiction, um, or if you have studied fiction, you've um, internalized You've internalized an idea about storytelling, right? Just like you just sort of know what makes an interesting story, and so and, and, and those instincts are really really useful, I think, when you go and do magazine journalism because. Um, there are a lot of people who are great, uh, great reporters and can get information that other people can't get. And then there are other people who are great stylists, but who, you know, who aren't necessarily terrific at figuring out how to, how to get people to tell them stuff or to find things out. Um, and then you realize, like, oh, well, if, 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 you can, if you can exist somehow a little bit in both of those worlds, if you can learn a little bit about how to report, and then you have this instinct for storytelling you can be really, really useful in a magazine, either as an editor or as a writer, because it's, it's a pretty thin, thin band of people, I think, who can do both of those things. Um, and uh, in the, in, going back to your earlier question, I think the thing that started making me feel confident at Harper's at some point was this feeling that no matter what, at some point, no matter what I was editing, whether it was like a tiny little 300-word thing in the reading section or a short story, I, I ended up editing a bit of fiction there, a short story, or when I started doing more journalistic stuff there, I just started realizing, like, oh right, I know how I know how to keep this story interesting. I know where it sags, and you know if you've been in a workshop, this is why I think workshops are, among other reasons, very very useful. Is you start to develop that sense of, of where the heat in the story lies and where the heat of the story dies out. You know, you start thinking, like, okay, well it dies out here. What do we what do we need to do to turn it up? You know, um, and it just becomes instinctual to you. I think, I think that's...
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, you know, worked for several newspapers, and I feel like part of that moment for me where I, started, I would get more confident in the place was also when I knew that it was a story that fit the paper. Like I knew, I knew what a city paper story was, yeah. and then I wrote a city paper story, and then it was like that city paper story is in the city paper, and like, okay, this like, we're starting to figure this out. Exactly. How does that work when you go from a place like Harper's to a place like GQ to a place like the New York Times Magazine? What, what are the connections between those kinds of stories, and I guess part of what, so you went from Harper's and you eventually ended up at GQ, where,
2: where did you go now? I, I went from Harper's and then I went, I went to the Times Magazine for right. a while then, and I was a, I was a story editor there, and um, in, in, in between I briefly went to Canada and worked for a magazine called Saturday Night. Um, you worked for Saturday Night? I did, yeah. just did not come up in my internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. night is good. Were, were you
1: there really? when Burt Carl's lead was published? I was indeed there. When Tell me you guys that, that, that story.
2: Uh, I read like <laughs> eight <laughs> minutes. <laughs> That's a great, great story. That's I I think it's one of the best part stories I've ever read. I, 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 it it absolutely is one of the best You are one of seven people who read
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. i so, just so let us put it was up was on, 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 on the month world. Is that right? Yeah, we're recorded in off some PDF. God, awesome. Yeah, it's a great story.
2: So I went briefly to Saturday night, yeah. because the, this guy I was talking about, Paul Tuff, he, uh, he left Harvard, so he became the editor chief Saturday night, and so mm-hmm. I went up there, worked with him for a while, and then um, that magazine sort of fell apart and I came back to New York. Because um, yeah, you never live up to Merkur on Right, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and then I worked at the Times Magazine for a while, for four years, and then went to GQ for five years, and like, just and I guess so. I guess what's interesting is you move around these
1: places. I feel like there must be a balance between how much you're being expected to bring your style and your perspective to the magazine, and how much you're being expected to bend to the magazine what the magazine does right. and what the magazine thinks of itself.
2: With the subject matter, at least in my case, was was never very different. It was never a story that I was working on at GQ that I couldn't imagine being a New story or a an big time story or whatever. My feeling about The Times, so having been at GQ for a while, was, you know, here's this, like, they obviously do great work, important journalism, but it felt to me like the magazine had become a little stiff, you know? Um, and one of the things I really want to do is, um, is just create a sort of broader spectrum there and, and create a place for more literary writing and a little bit more voice-driven writing. And, um, and so, you know, one of the immediate ways of doing that was... Having a couple of writers who I worked with at GQ come come in me there. This a guy named John Jeremiah Sullivan. who's a very has a very recognizable voice when he writes. So, okay. um, and uh, you want to find young writers who, um, who are two things: uh, a extremely extremely hungry to do stories, right. just just burning to do magazine stories. How can young writers like uh, send them? That scene, what, do you, what do you look for? What is that tenaciousness? I mean, if, you know, if somebody sends you a pitch, like you can you can tell within the first paragraph of reading a pitch. I don't mean necessarily that they should be like all hopped up. You can just tell, like, okay, there is an intelligence, and energy, and enthusiasm, and an awareness of the world and of the magazine that this writer wants to write for going on here. You can you can tell it almost immediately, you know. you think, ah, this is a person who has a sophisticated sense of of what this magazine does and wants to do that thing. So that's one thing. And then the other is um, is I think I mean magazine writing is hard and it's tiring and and, you know, you can sort of I think if you do it for a long time, you can fall into a little bit of a rhythm where you first think like, you know, there's a kind of sausage making to it. You think, oh I got a good magazine story, you do this kind of lead, you do this kind of thing, you do this kind of and then you're out. Um, and, and what I really, really want are are people who don't think that way yet about magazine stories. Instead they think this is just an opportunity to tell a great story. And I'm a really good storyteller, and I like I want to, I, I, I want to flex it, you know. It's part of that because those people are more open to editing. That relationship can be more open. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. They just they, they want to learn how to do it. Yeah. When did you start editing, so Two thousand five, I think. So kind of, I mean, sort of early-ish in his career. Yeah, he had written. He had written one truly, truly great story for Harpers about um, horse racing, uh, which he won a national magazine war for and became his first book, his book Blood Horses. Um, and then he started writing at GQ, and, uh, and he and I started working together. And his next big story was this um, story about a Christian rock festival. Uh, and really, the moment I, mean, I knew John was I knew him a little bit before that. And I knew he was a very smart guy. and I loved this piece in Harper's, so I sort of thought, maybe that's like the one great piece he has in it It was also about his dad. It was stuff that he knew very well. Uh, you know, then he did this Christian rock story, and I read it. And just thought, wow, this is this is a real special writer. Like this is a writer who people are going to read for a long time. When you get that first draft, I mean, how close to the final version was that first that first take? What what's your job then? Well well, with that story, with him in general, I think he would agree with this if he was here. Um, there was just way, way too much, you know. He he um, he had a hard time sort of seeing what how to put the story together, so it was a lot of incredible material that it wasn't it wasn't organized especially well. Um you know, he turned in a twenty four thousand word draft, I wouldn't even asked you what your child was. <laughs> So so yeah. The first part of the job was just saying like, okay, well let's let's get this down to half its length, ahead, and, ahead, and, ahead. and then talk Keep about
1: editing. Yeah. Sullivan came basically with you from GQ to the New York Times. Is that accurate? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. That feels to me like i have had a relatively strong relationship. You should know that I talked to some people who know you before. You and I talked, talked and they all basically, basically said the same thing, which is like nobody loves <laughs> nobody loves anyone. Any editor, like they love Joel. Well, that's nice to hear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's no way for you to slap that one out. That's like, <laughs> like, uh, legitimate compliment. I'm trying to embarrass you, but thanks, I, people. Good night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why? You know like, what, what? What? What do you? What do you do that other people don't? Why is John
2: Jeremiah selling this huge magazine writer, why is he willing to jump ship? What? What's the secret Well, I mean, you know, I I, I, I think. I mean, I think with John specifically, it was. Just, I mean, we just worked on a lot of big stories together. We've developed a kind of language that uh, we both understood, and um, and I think he just trusted that, and he and he felt like I understood his writing, and and then you know, there's the, like there's a little bit of a psychological component. In some ways, being an editor is it's as much just talking to people as it is doing stuff on a page, and um, and, and I think with him and with other people, the thing I like—I don't know if I'm especially great at it—but the thing I like the most about the job is just being on the phone and having them talk about the story and say, "I don't know, I don't know what's interesting. I can't tell." And then you know, and then you just keep—you sort of keep talking about it, and talking about it. And in, in between the two of you, you start to see something nice take shape, you know. And I and I and I think um, I think if you can make a writer feel. And this is going to sound incredibly corny, but if you can make a writer feel like it's okay to not know what they're doing, right? They don't really know exactly what their story is. They're a little lost in their material. If that's a fine place to be, and you can sort of talk it through. Um, and you can minimize their anxiety a little bit, then, then I think you've done most of your job. And then after that, it's just looking at the words and figuring out which ones work.
1: You know? So it's like a combination of editing and therapy little bit. I mean, therapy oh. might be a little strong. I mean, in some cases, it's not. In some cases, well, it feels. I, I, I mean, I've been struck. I mean, one of the things that's been nice about this podcast, we've had all these like uh, amazing writers on, and they've all basically said the same thing with a few uh, <laughs> exceptions. Most people have said, uh, I'm incredibly nervous before every story. Yeah. Uh, as soon as I finish one, I don't think I'm ever going to find one that good again. Right. Uh, even at this kind of upper echelon of this stuff, it is the type of work where you go from you know zero to sixty and right back to zero. Yeah. Um, so, I, how long does that process take when you're working on a piece? How long
2: do you give Sullivan on a on a story? I mean, it's, it, you know, it's as you imagine, especially the place the, the Times where it's coming out every week, um, and a lot of the stories are. Are, are news driven, right? So, so they have, if not—if if they don't have hard pegs, there's also it's like a moment within which you want to publish them. So so different kinds of stories have different paces. And sometimes it's, it's very, very fast turnaround. You think, like, oh, there's this thing that just happened. I don't know. There's, um, you know, Qaddafi's been overthrown. We want to get somebody there right now, and we want that story in the magazine in two weeks. So that's an incredibly small window within which to do that that kind of story. Um, other times, and this tends to be the case with stories that John works on which aren't which aren't so news-driven, you just say, okay, we're going to send this great writer whose mind we really trust into this situation and we're going to let him absorb it as much as he can and then come back and try to write it. And then, and, it, and so it's not driven so much by the magazine's dictates as it is by, by that writer's pace and process. And then it becomes your job as an editor becomes, um, you know, you become a little bit of a scold or a nag or, 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 or you try to get stuff out of them faster than they might otherwise want to do it. Do you, like, do you have to like that part of the job to do the job? Or is that like a part that nobody likes? Because that sounds horrible. Yeah, nobody, I mean, nobody likes nagging. I think, I, mean, I think over time you develop all sorts of tricks you know, and, you, and you, learn, you learn the psyche of all of your writers. It sounds so it sounds so much more lucky but, but you know like well if I say this kind of thing then he you know he'll rise to that occasion you've written a lot about money
1: yeah um, and you have written about money in a way that uh, I have at least personally find really helpful I just turned 31 I just got married I am uh, a part uh, I am a uh, partner in a small business. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm realizing A, I should probably start thinking about money, and B, I don't understand shit. (laughs) All of your stuff kind of is like from that exact point of view. And not, not, you know shit, but (laughs) you write about money in this kind of um, emotional way rather than a pragmatic way, which I find uh, really helpful. You had a column in uh, GQ for a long time called Medieval. And, and I guess I, I wonder how much uh, your upbringing uh, had to do with the way that you write about money. <clears throat> I should say that in my family, like, uh, talking about money is, is used kind of like some, like, uh, very rare weapon that you can only use very occasionally <laughs> when it kills people immediately. Like, we never <laughs> talk about it, but then when it comes up, it, like, clears
2: the room, you know? Uh, so I'm pretty bad at talking.
1: Well, you're a that.
2: No, my fan was terrible about it. Um, it, it as I think well, you know, most most families are, one way or another. Um, the, the way I started writing about money was that we were sitting around in, a, in an editorial meeting at GQ and we are trying to think of different kinds of columns to to put into the magazine. My boss said, gosh, we should have a, a, should have a money column, but I don't want it to really be an investment advice column because everybody does that. And it just seems dull. And... Uh, And again, Andy Ward, who uh, who was Jean-Marie's editor, uh, and who knew a little bit about my background and and, you know my neuroses, really um, helpfully piped up in the meeting. Oh, Joel should do that because he's he's a mess with money. (laughs) He's (laughs) a total disaster. Did anyone ever write? That is terrible financial advice. You cost me thousands. Well, no, I mean, I, 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 and I, I really specifically wasn't giving investment advice except for this one time where I wrote about, um, you know, this is going to get really exciting now. <laughs> if you have coffee, drink it now. <laughs> I wrote about 401ks. I literally had no idea how one set up a 401k and even what they were. And I just didn't understand And then how did you divide your investments in them. Um, and so I, I set out to learn like just basic stuff. Okay, I need to have a retirement account. How do I do it? And then, within that, I talked you know, so talk to enough investment people. And I started thinking, like, oh, I understand this now. And I, and, and I got a little cocky, and I started giving some advice. <laughs> and I started giving that advice, I believe, it was um, in late August or early September of 2008. <laughs> August was like very small time in the US time. Um, and I was just like, this is what you should do. and You should be investing in these kinds of things, and these kinds of things, index funds. Seriously, like. I was running around index <laughs> <laughs> A month before, I had no idea what the index fund was. And I was just talking about it like I was um, uh, Jim Kramer. and um, that column came out literally the month that the bottom dropped out of the global economy. And, uh, and, and, and I ended up writing this thing for the Washington Post about that experience. And it wasn't like I was picking specific stocks, but what I realized in doing that and in talking to all these guys is that nobody really, really knows, right? I mean, there's, there's no expert who actually knows what he's talking about. I mean, I was wrong, but everybody down the line was wrong. I mean, even guys who are getting paid a lot of money to go on TV and say this is how you should invest your money. They were they were wrong. They had no idea what they were talking about. And that idea struck me as very interesting. That like, like it's a very American idea, right? Just to be, to, have, to be sure of things, right? We're not a culture that's comfortable with not with not being sure of things, with not knowing. And and, and that got us into some real trouble. I mean, lots of like, people operating in bad ways got us into trouble too, but it's also this, this cultural, like a cultural psyche issue, which is like, we like to pretend that we know what we're doing, and oftentimes we don't, and it's okay and probably better to say, I don't actually know. That to me seems like a very useful um, place to exist as a writer and as an editor. It's just this idea that like every time you go, you, 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 you embark on a new story, or you open a new door, I think, I think the most useful thing, the most useful place to operate from is, is a place of not you knowing. Money kind of goes through that soccer story, too. Yeah, and that's that's, that's part of the reason I was so drawn to him, is he, um, I mean, I didn't know the specifics of his background, but you read his stuff, and I thought, wow, this is a guy who knows exactly who I am, and and where that anxiety lives, you know? Um, And he's just so um, compassionate towards people who who aren't on the winning side of the ledger.
1: Yeah, I mean, the theme in that story around money, which is also something you've written about a lot, is this kind of idea that, like, um, it's not about uh, going for more money, necessarily, but it's about what, that not having money, uh, you lose grace. Yes. Yeah. Or not yeah. having it, like, not having money brings disgrace, not that having money particularly brings it,
2: right. but there's a guarantee that if you don't, it's very hard to be graceful. Exactly. And I, and I felt like, without getting too, sort of, more much about it, um, I, I felt like that was very much my experience growing up, not just in my own family but you know, we grew up in a part of upstate New York where there just aren't a lot of people around who have a lot of money um, and, and, you, and over time as you become—you grow up and you become a little bit more attentive to it and aware of it you, you, you see that in action all the time, it's exactly that it's just, a, it's just the slow grinding away of grace um, as, I mean, that's George's word for it which I think is the perfect word um, And you see the way, like, it's hard to be generous when you're so stressed and so tired, you know. It's hard to be the parent you want to be, or the the partner you want to be, or the, you know. It's it's hard to do when you're carrying around that kind of anxiety. And I think there's not not a great cultural appreciation for that existential state. you You edit a lot of people... Who
1: are in some form of that existential state? I mean, it, uh, magazine writing, even at the top level, is not a particularly lucrative pursuit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I have a couple of questions. Well, well, one is, I mean, I, I think money in magazines in New York is a you you don't make very much. The cost of entry is really high. There's a reason I think part of you know, the, the reason that the people who staff most of the magazines are grew up on the East Coast and went out of schools because there's a cost of entry into that business. You have to put in unpaid time. Yep. you have to put in time well below the line. Yep. Uh, and be able to but the other thing is you have to kind of like weirdly keep up appearances. How do you manage that existential like crisis in your writers or or in people in that in this world who are trying to break into it? Is there advice that you have for people who maybe do not have the advantages that most people who in
2: magazines have. Um, I do. I mean, I don't know if I have actionable advice, but I have lots of sympathy. Um, and in part because I mean, that was that was very much my experience. I mean, my experience when I went to college was was one of just feeling like I was the the hillbilly among sophisticates. And then um, and then my experience going to New York, where I had literally never been in my life. I think I mean it took me a long time to get over this feeling of being a bit of an imposter in that world. I mean, in, in, I, mean I guess I can say that word right now, but it, it, took, it took a while. And even you know, even writing that column for GQ, there was some part of me, some self-satisfied part of me too, that felt like I was a little bit like I was just sticking it to that world a little bit because you know you work at Condé Nast, and it's a it's a it's a building full of luxury magazines, you know, with it's, a, it's, it's a luxury building, a luxury, luxury magazines, and, and, and luxurious people, and um, you know, and those magazines come kind of relentlessly telling people that they need to buy things that won't make them any happier. You know, that are very expensive. And I felt like, oh, if I can kind of get this slightly subversive message into this magazine, that will make me feel better about myself. Um, and it, you know, and it did a little bit. Uh, you know, a real it is a simultaneous sort of feeling of um, shame and also, you know, it's converted to superiority a little bit and anger, but. Um, but it was hard to it's hard to move in that world and feel like, wow, I just don't have enough, you know. And it's not like there are specific things that I wanted, you just felt like my apartment's crappy and my furniture is a futon and I'm forty years old and my kid, my three kids live like in that basement room. I mean it's a it's a perfectly fine apartment, it's a very, very nice neighborhood in Brooklyn. But um but it's less nice than everybody else's apartment I know. And, and and I don't mean for me in any way. We are wildly, wildly rich compared to 99.9% of the world. And yet, within that little circumscribed world, you're just constantly aware of your own less than this. And so, to now answer your question, um, I understand that state of being a writer and wanting so badly to write, and then also just being so anxious about finances and the way that those two things can be across cross And so you know, one of the things you can do is try to say to a like, look, what I can help you do is put a great magazine story into this magazine, and when you do that, this many people are going to read it, and it's going to give you a boost, both in terms of your esteem, but also it's going to lead to more work, and that's like that's how we'll put it together.
1: Joel man, I, I really appreciate you uh, coming on the way down. I really appreciate being here. Thanks very much. I, especially with all of your incredible travel. The people who stuck around, do you guys have questions for Joel? So, go to that microphone. <laughs>
0: so I have a question about
1: what you said about writers and editors like, living in the space of not knowing mm-hmm. and that being this really productive
0: space. And so I feel like when you pitch the ideas that you should know or you should really seem like you know right, to convince someone like you that this is a story that I really want to publish and this writer really knows a ton about it. So um, how do you balance that tension, I guess, of being working on a story and, and maybe not knowing or having all this material and working your way through it and writing
1: a pitch where you seem really confident that you do know and
2: that you can map this whole thing out in stages or time. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think when mean, I think um, I mean, that I think the balance you want to strike is that you know, you, you you know enough that whatever you're going to discover, whatever you're going to discover, you're going to be prepared. You're 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 equipped for that discovery, right? So what you don't want, and I think this goes for any kind of writing. I mean, I mean, you know, I think Billy came up and was talking about fiction writing. He would say that if you go into a story already knowing, not both literally what the end is in terms of plot, but also like what the theme, like what you want to say, then you're probably all, if you're already crippling that story um, because something has to happen. Like there's got to be a discovery that happens um, in the process. And I and I think the same thing goes for great nonfiction writing too. So 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 what you want to convey is this sense of like. Here's this thing that I'm very, very interested in. I'm not just interested in it because I read a little bit about it and I thought, oh, that's cool. Maybe I could write that. I'm interested in it because either I have this life experience that somehow um, informs that interest and gives me a a kind of expertise, or I'm interested in it just because it is a topic that absolutely obsesses me, and because it obsesses me, I've learned this and this and this. And I imagine a story that will lead to this kind of... um, not conclusion exactly, like you don't want to have the answers up front, like I was saying, but but like this you know, I can imagine a story that have this kind of effect, right? And 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 I know enough going in that I know where I know I'll be able to look for the things that are gonna give me that effect. Does that make any I mean it's a very abstract answer? Does that make any sense? Okay?
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes
2: total sense. The one thing I'll say about pitching, if you guys don't mind, is um you basically want to do the editor's job first. And, and, and any editor who's receiving your pitch is in, a, is in a position where they have to go to their boss and they have to say, here's the story I, should, I think we should assign. And the boss is going to say why. And so you want to give them all the information they need to say, this is why this is a good story. Um, so it can't be that you go to them and say, I'm kind of interested in it. Will you give me a chance? You've got to say to them, like, you've got to imagine them as like, I've got to give this person the material they need to go to this other person and have them say yes. You know, you've got you it's up to you to arm them. Um, so 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 that, that's mostly what I mean by like demonstrating demonstrating that you know enough. Yeah.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah. I
2: have one I have one more question. I did uh,
1: ask a couple people who know you about what I should ask you before you did this. And uh, I was just i just gonna read a question for from a colleague of yours. Why is he so goddamn smart and kind and good-looking? <laughs> Why doesn't he age like a normal person? Why, how can, oh, how can the rest of us be more like him? Has he ever, ever had an enemy? And if so, who is it that can we <laughs> go beat that person bad. up on his behalf? Very <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, is there anyone? Can we go take someone's ass? <laughs> I'll thank you somebody. Thanks, thanks, Bill. Sure, thanks very much. Thanks for listening to form. I know I say that every week, and I mean it every week. This week, a special thank you. uh, uh, Extra amount of thanks. I know the sound was not great, and uh, we just thought the interview was worth it. And if you got to this point, I guess you thought that too, so I'm not going to apologize too much. But thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Limmer. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner, and our intern is Sarah Mandelare thanks very much to the university of pittsburgh for hosting us and continuing to support what we do over here at Longform. go check them out Pitt writers uh and thanks very much to joel lovell uh joel was in pittsburgh for like 10 hours the guy had a flight canceled that interview started like 30 seconds after he walked into the room and he couldn't have been more gracious throughout the entire thing so joel thank you and uh we'll be back next week